0: You guys don't get to hear from me very much. Uh, and even for those that don't know me, my name's Lorenzo. Uh, I'm the lead pastor, but I'm not the regular teaching pastor, that's Ryan. So, uh, so this is a rare treat for me and I'm really excited. And I just hope I didn't overprepare, uh, and I hope it comes out properly. I had to cut a ton of stuff. I've definitely been feeling uh, Ryan's pain. Uh, you know, I, now I understand why the talks have been 55 minutes long. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to cover. Uh, we, gotta, we gotta, you know, do it justice right? We got to do it justice. I can't see if you're laughing at home or not. I can't see if you're smirking or anything. It's kind of hard to preach to a camera, but anyway, had to cut a ton of stuff. And so I just hope that I can stick to my notes and I don't add lib too much. And so, uh, uh, Cause if I ad lib too much, you know, we, I, I might end up preaching a bunch of stuff that I, that's supposed to not be in the sermon. But then again, you know, if the spirit leads, what are you, what are you going to do? Right? So um, anyway, but if I, if you see me, you know, getting on a roll and not looking down enough at my notes, maybe you'll only have to call in the national guard or something. Cause we might be uh, here all day. But as Ryan said, uh, we're going through this series called the story of justice. And, and I hope that you've been tracking with the trajectory of this series and you've seen how we've been going through it and I don't know about you and how how um, it's been affecting you and changing your life or what God has been doing in your heart as it relates to this series and and the ways that the Lord has has shown you things that you don 't want to see or in your own hearts or even showing you things that uh, that you you do want to see about the world around us and the things that he's called us to now, I don't know about you but for me I was just telling Ryan earlier this week that th- this series is living up to my expectations and my hopes for myself. And I don't know about with COVID and everything, I have no idea what's going on. But at least for my for myself, I love the way that I've been challenged. I've been loving this series. I've been loving what God's been doing in my heart and and I just hope that the way that he's been working on me, he's been, he's been working on you and uh, and I hope that this series is a transformational series for us as a church. But as we've been going through all of this, you know, last week we, we looked at how Jesus, uh, how God sent his son Jesus to the cross for us and how in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see justice for our sin. And so now we're picking up on the implications and what it means now for us as a church made possible through the gospel. And as people come to faith, it's not just a private faith or a personal faith that we have, but we've been brought into a family of followers of Jesus. So I'm going to tip my cards here a little bit this morning, but um, we're going to be looking at how the church is the new family of justice. Not new in the sense of replacing something that existed previously, previously because God's, um, God has always had his people but new in the sense that in the birth of the church in the, in the first century, it changed what the new family or it changed what the family of God looks like. So new in that sense. And so we're going to see how uh, we are a family, according to God's design, how uh, we're a gospel made family and and then show how being a family becomes a platform for justice in the way that we relate to one another. So, and You know, as I think Ryan already mentioned next week, we're going to be looking at how we function uh, in light of that to see justice in the world around us. Pray with me, would you? Thank you Lord for this opportunity for us to be able to gather together online this morning, to look into your word. Lord, we are interested in nothing but hearing from you. And as much as we prep and prepare on the human level and all of that, that is seeking, That is really just about doing our due diligence to be faithful with the things that you've called us to. But it's really, Lord, you're the one that we want to hear from this morning. You're the one that we need to hear from. So here, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would prevent anything from coming out of my mouth that is not of you. And uh, Jesus, we, we want to honor you and glorify you. We want to learn more about you this morning and learn about the things that you're calling us to. So create in, in us hearts that are open and receptive to all that you have for us in your name we pray. Amen. So about uh, 20 years ago, I, I took a break from ministry and I came to California. That's, that's how long I've been in California. And, um, and, and I came here to go to school. And it's a long story, but basically I had no money and I didn't, my, my visa wasn't the kind of visa where I could work. So I couldn't work for a wage and do anything like that. And um, I thought I had a place lined up to, to stay in, but then, you know, uh, that fell through. And, and so I was basically just planning on sleeping in my car and I was totally fine with it at the time. I wasn't married, didn't have kids, wasn't a big deal, sleep in my car, who cares, right? But one day I was at the church building that uh, I was a part of and, and a guy walked up to me and he asked me, he says, Hey, do you need a place to stay? And I'd never met this guy before in my life. Never didn't know who he was, never said anything to him. We had never connected, interacted, nothing. But he walks up and he says, Hey, do you need a place to stay? And as he tells the story later that he had walked by me and God had told him to come back and offer that guy a place to stay. And so he says, do you need a place to stay? And I said, yeah, I I need a place to stay. And I'll never forget the very first time I walked into his home. When I walked in, he said, and he stretched out his arms and he said, welcome home, my brother. And it was such a beautiful moment. And the way that he welcomed me is something that will always stick with me. But when he said, welcome home, my brother, those were not just words Those were not to say brother was not just another way to reference another person, but specifically it's, it's a familial term. He was welcoming me into his household as family. And he recognized me as a spiritual brother and he didn't wait. And here's the significant thing. He didn't wait for, um, the opportunity to build a friendship with me before we were able to relate to one another as brothers, as family. He just instantly recognized me as a spiritual brother and welcomed me into his home. And this is a fundamental part of what it means to be the church. We're a family, we're a gospel-made family. But in the modern Western church, it's lar- we're largely unaware um, that this, being a family, being spiritual brothers and sisters to one another, we're largely unaware that that is part of God's design. And our primary text this morning is, uh, is going to be Ephesians chapter two. And uh, in Ephesians, we, we reference it as the book of Ephesians maybe, but uh, really it's a letter written to the church in Ephesus by the apostle Paul uh, to the church there. And Paul was a, he was writing from Rome where he was a prisoner. And before we actually get into the text, what I need to do is I need to set it up because we need to understand the backstory. We need to understand really what's going on and the references that he's making, because I want you to be able to appreciate the underlying circumstances and the underlying uh, situation and and even his intended audience. So Ephesus was located in uh, modern day Turkey. So that means that it was a, a Gentile city, not a Jewish city. And, 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 but there was a large Jewish community that was there in Ephesus. And he's writing to the Gentile believers, those that had become followers of Jesus as the gospel spread into the known world in that first century, largely due in part to Paul's own missionary efforts. Now, because of the fact that Jesus was a Jew, the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. You might say that the, the early church, struggled a bit and had some issues in trying to figure out what it looked like for uh, Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus to figure this out together. God had established a a unique relationship with Israel and the Gentiles were outside of that covenant. And oddly enough, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. And referring to someone as uncircumcised was often a way to negatively reference those outside of the Jewish community and the covenant that they had with God. Weird, I know, I totally get it. But the good thing is, is that one of our pastors, Pastor Isaac, he's Jewish and I don't want to get into that right now. And so if you have any questions about anything I just said in the last 20 seconds, you can just send Pastor Isaac an email and he's our resident expert when it comes to all things Jewish and he'd be happy to explain it to you. I'm sure he's a very nice person. Um, And uh, yeah, so just send him an email. But anyway, because of God's unique covenant relationship with Israel, A Jewish follower of Jesus compared to a Gentile follower of Jesus would have had very different cultural norms, customs, practices, ways of of relating to God. And I think that goes without saying, but what they had in common was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is so awesome about the gospel is that it creates unity where it is unlikely to exist naturally. The gospel creates unity where it is unlikely to exist naturally. So this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to the second chapter of Ephesians. And our focus is going to be on uh, verses 11 through 22. But in verse 11 there, and we we won't get to it quite yet, but I'll, I'll just say that verse 11 starts with the word, therefore. And so before we get into the whole thing there, um, we need to take note that the, that the opening of that verse starts with the therefore. And whenever, this is, whenever we come to uh, a therefore in scripture, what question do we have to ask people? What question do we have to ask? What's it there for? What's it there for? When we see a therefore, we ask, what's it there for? And what we're trying to do there is recognize that something has been said previously, And then the word therefore becomes a bridge to what's about to be said. So when we come to a, therefore, we look back to see what was said previously. And then we pay attention to what is going to be said now in light of what has just been said. We got a lot to get into, but because our text starts with a, therefore, and because we do have to pay attention to the immediate context, I think what I'll do is I'll just summarize the previous um, section of that chapter in verse four and five of, uh, of that section of the chapter there. And I'll just read it for you. So you don't have to turn there or anything, but it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace, you have been saved. And so that's sort of a summary. The whole passage there really is just talking about what Jesus has done for us because of his great love for us and the means by which we have come to faith and are saved. And so that's what leads us up to the therefore in verse 11, our main passage here. So check it out with me. Uh, Ephesians chapter two in verse 11, therefore, remember, Pretty brutal, right? And then verse 13, it says, but now, but now. So even that is a bridge, right? Something that's been said, he's going to continue talking. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, in verse 13, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one who were far off speaking of the Gentiles and peace to those who were near speaking of the Jewish community for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. And then in verse 19, it starts off with so then, so so then is another form of therefore where everything that has been said again previously leads us up to this moment. So he says in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But, and that's a contrasting word, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and citizenship brings rights, privileges, uh, and responsibilities. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Or in other words, you are now made family. You've been you were once alienated and separated, but now it culminates in being made family, built on the foundation of the uh, apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Now, this integration of both Jew and Gentile, was made, as we see in our text, was made possible through Jesus culminates in them being made family. And this would be the makeup of the church as we know it today. This is how we are a gospel-made family. And scripture consistently and primarily uses familial language in reference to the church. But we tend to overlook that spiritual reality. And we, we typically don't think of one another as family. Why is that? I think the reason why we don't typically think of one another as family, we don't typically view one another as brothers and sisters is because we've settled for something less than God's divine ideal. And what is it that we've settled for? I think I would would contend that what we've settled for is friendship. We've settled for friendship and that's less than God's uh, divine ideal. And let me explain. And friendship is even just how most of us relate to those that we know and love um, in the church. Now I don't want to lose you. So I got to explain this, but I think you will actually agree with me that settling for friendship is settling for less or viewing one another through the lens of friendship is settling for less. And and I think you'll agree with me because how do we describe the closest friends that we have in our lives? What do we say about them? We say they're like family. Family right? So we, we view our closest friends as family. Family is a higher form of relationship. Friendship is obviously a very good thing and a gift from God. And when we have a lot of them, that's amazing. When we don't have a lot of them, it sucks. uh, And it's not good. When we have a best friend or two or three or four, um, And I don't know who those weirdos are that have four best friends, but when you have best friends or a best friend, uh, that's a very rare and special blessing from God. I'm just saying that the the nature and the essence of the relationship is different. And so I I just hope that um, we can sort of explore that together. Friendship is definitely a good thing. But the problem is that when we elevate friendship Above family, what we're doing is that we exchange what God wants the church to be in favor of what we want the church to be. The divine ideal is not that we would be friends. The divine ideal is that we would be a family. I believe there are only two verses in the entire New Testament where fellow followers of Jesus are referred to as friends. And looking at the church through the lens of friendship creates additional problems. It actually leads to unnecessary relational isolation and detachment because we often don't allow, we don't allow our lives to intersect until we become friends. And we think of people uh, that maybe we want to get to know, or we might even see someone in our church community that might even be in need And sometimes our thoughts are, well, you know, I don't know them that well, so I'm not going to get involved or I'm not going to say hi to them or I'm not going to engage in a a conversation with them or I'm not going to reach out to them or whatever it is. We often gauge whether, we often decide whether or not we're going to interact or participate in somebody else's life based on We sort of, through that grid of, are we good friends? Are we good enough friends? Do I know them that well? Is it my place to do this? And I'm saying, it has nothing to do with any of that. I'll just give you the TLDR version. We're family. So yes, is a conclusion to all that. Yes, we're family. So yes, our lives participate with one another. Our lives intersect but that's why when we view one another through the lens of friendship, it leads to unnecessary isolation and detachment. And we wait for bridges of friendship to be built first. And, we, and, and that's because we think that friendship is the, is the key to belonging, which it's not. And when friendship fails to materialize in the way that meets our expectations, it can leave us feeling stuck, isolated, alone. We might even leave a local church over that a local church that we should actually view as family, not view as a bunch of friends. And in those moments, because we're looking through the lens of friendship, when we're feeling isolated in that moment, it could actually be a greater form of isolation, even worse and more than what we're experiencing right now with COVID. We have people in our church community who live alone and the government says we're not allowed to you know, interact or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you know about the stay at home order and all of that, right? And it's a very really difficult time. And a lot of people are feeling very detached and very isolated. But imagine feeling detached and isolated when you're in a room full of people it could make you feel that much more isolated and that much more detached and have a, uh, a significant effect. So when, we're, when we talk about the kind of detachment and isolation, this is not even the kind of isolation that will be fixed once we begin to gather again. Because it's a, relation, a relational detachment. It's not about proximity. So my contention is that the focus we place on friendship is settling for less. It's not how scripture describes us. And I believe it's actually more isolating, especially since for some of us, friendship can be, and especially meaningful friendship, can be quite elusive or, or hard to establish in the midst of our busy lives, in the midst of our, our careers, in the midst of raising families. And again, friendship is good. It's just different than family. And God says we're family. If the church is a family, does that then mean that everything is going to be butterflies and rainbows? No, no just because we're family doesn't mean that everything's always going to be great. And, and, and it doesn't mean that we go around like Olaf. Hey, I'm Olaf. And I like warm hugs. I mean, that's, that's just not how it works. That's a very unrealistic view of family. And I think we all know that when we really think about it. But I think sometimes when, when pastors discuss the church, being a family, often the way that it's portrayed is, you know, um, you know, this blissful kind of, serene kind of situation. And and I don't know any family like that. In the church, there's going to be drama. Absolutely. Uh, Whether it's the first century church or the modern day Western church, there's going to be drama just as there is in any family because family is hard and it's not always awesome. And part of that, and this is where it's different than friendship. We don't choose who our family is. See, with friends, we sort of like, we can kind of like remain detached in safety and go, hmm, I don't know if I want to be their friend. Or, hmm, I really want to be that person's friend. And there's an element of choice there as we enter into a relationship of friendship. But when it comes to family, we don't get to choose who our family is. And I know that many people wish that they could choose. They they wish they had a choice. I, I wish I didn't have this person in my family. I know that happens. And I know, and, and, and I, kidding aside, and I definitely don't want to make light of it. I know, and I, and I recognize that some of us have broken and messed up families with painful pasts and hurtful things that have taken place. And, and all of that shows us is that we need Jesus. And these broken uh, families that we live in or are raised up in, they're just a distortion of God's design. They're a distortion of God's design. They're obviously not the model of how a family should be, and it's not following God's intention or his design. So I'm not suggesting that we have a romanticized view of family. And being family doesn't even mean that we have to be the best of friends with one another. It doesn't mean everyone in our church community we have to be best friends with. Are we best friends with all of our siblings? For those of you who have siblings, are we always best friends with our siblings? Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. But the beauty of being a part of God's family, of being spiritual brothers and sisters to one another is that it cre- family creates a context for the possibility of godly friendships to form and flourish. Being a family creates a context for the possibility of godly friendships to form and flourish because friendships are good. We want friendships. That's not a bad thing. And they're a blessing from God. Okay, cool story, bro. How does this connect to justice? Well, not only is family a context for possible friendships, but it also provides a context for godly justice, for setting wrong things right. As a family, we can't turn a blind eye. We can't ignore when someone is in need. We can't let ourselves off the hook saying to ourselves, well, I don't really know that person. Or we're not especially close and use that as an excuse to not step into somebody's world when they need a hand or when they need someone to come alongside them. Being a family means we're responsible for and to one another. Sometimes, and some of you know this, when I connect with people in our church uh, and we're talking about what's going on and how they're doing and all that kind of thing, and I'm doing my whole pastoral check-in, I'll say, who's responsible for you and who you're responsible for? Sometimes I turn it around and say, who are you responsible for and who you're responsible to, just to change it up a little bit. But it's a question that I ask, and it's, it's, it's something that we should be thinking about. We should view our church family as people that we are responsible for and people that we are responsible to. Now, I'm not going to be able to to provide a a comprehensive list, but uh, of ways that we see justice um, and, and what that looks like in the church. But what I would like to do is look at four ways that we can be a family of justice. The first is racial and ethnic togetherness, racial and ethnic togetherness we saw in our text how the first century church was diverse, both Jew and Gentile made one made a family as spiritual brothers and sisters and, and and unified around what mattered most Jesus as it is Jesus who created this family. And throughout the new Testament, we see the first century church striving for unity, seeking to overcome serious historical and ethnic division. And we should strive for the same thing, obviously, in the modern Western church, we should strive for racial and ethnic togetherness. That's something that we should care about. And for collective church, we're a church on the West side. And we have been since day one. And there are 530,000 people that live on the West side across 23 neighborhoods. And we want everybody to come to know Jesus. The West side, we, we recognize and we've sort of identified West, the West side as our mission field. It's where we're called. And when and when we when we started Collective Church almost five years ago, and any of you that were there and around back then, you know how it went and you know how and why we started. It was to reach them, the West side. And what we were doing was we were calling people to consider what God had called us to and for them to pray through and consider, is God calling them to the same thing? And that is our calling. It's it's part of our history and it's going to be a part of our future. We will never abandon our calling. We will always be a church community on the West side for the West side. Now, we recognize that the West side is not the most diverse region in Los Angeles. I think that's, that's obvious. And there are some horrible and unjust things in the history of Los Angeles and in the West side that contribute to that for sure. But instead of running from that, we want to be a part of a new story taking shape here on the West Side. And we looked recently at our our demographics, partly curious, but partly seeking to be responsible. And we looked at our demographics, it was maybe a month or two ago. And what we found is that we are more, as a church family, as a church community, we are more ethnically diverse than the West Side is. And that's a good thing. And we're grateful for it. Our goal at the very least is to reflect our context and then build from there. Now, I know that's not good enough for some people. Um, and there's incredible pressure within um, the, the church world, whether that's like, you know, the, the weird church culture of like pastors conferences and stuff like that, or even to the average person uh, um, that, are, that it's part of a church. There's incredible pressure for churches to be more multi-ethnic and more racially diverse. And who wouldn't want that? Of course, that's a good thing, right? But uh, pastor and author, Eric Mason, who happens to be a person of color with lots to say about racial inequality, who I think is Ryan's dad. Um, I say, I'm joking. He's too far away for you to hear him laughing. Ryan, uh, Ryan, let's just say Ryan appreciates Dr. Eric Mason's ministry. But anyway, he, he's got lots to say and he provides this helpful reminder. This is what he says diversity in the church isn't a mission. It is a result of faithful mission within a context that is diverse. Let me, let me say that again. I read it again. Diversity in the church isn't a mission. It is a result of faithful mission within a context that is diverse or to put it another way, a church that faithfully reaches their context will look like their context. So to focus on diversity and to sort of set it up as the ultimate goal in a context that's not especially diverse would be to fall and to fail actually it would be to fail in so many other areas the goal the ultimate goal of the church is not to be racially or ethnically diverse should the church be diverse uh, is the gospel for all absolutely we've seen that in our text we've seen why that matters but the reality is a church that faithfully reaches their context will look like their contexts. And as much as we love the idea of being more diverse, we would not consider it a win to have people commuting from their context to our context, to be a part of collective church. But we, we love it when people relocate from their context and make this their context because they share our calling, they wanna be on mission with us and they wanna join in what God is doing. So we don't want people to drive in for Sunday services is what I'm saying. Sunday services, Look, what is that? If you're lucky and our venue is not booked and we don't have a break over Christmas, what is that, 52 Sundays a year? Are you really gonna tell me that God's plan and his design for the church is limited to 52, one and a half or two hour gatherings? It's not the way it works. That's not his design. Sunday services are great. I miss our regular Sunday services where I'm not preaching to a camera and four or five other people in an empty place like this. Sunday services matter. And we had, we just recently had another conversation of what does it look like again? Did it begin to have in-person services? It's important. We need to gather as the church, not just to gather, but uh, well, in part it's to gather. It, 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 To gather is the nature and the essence of the church. It's part of what it means to be a church, but it's not just to gather and check off the box. It's what we do together as a church when we are gathering. It's how we're imaging together the oneness of our church family and the assembly and the coming together of God's people to worship him to look at the word together, to allow the word to permeate our hearts as, as, as it is preached, to worship the Lord together, to participate in communion and declare the means by which we are a gospel made family. So I'm getting off on a tangent. I'm not looking down enough at my notes. Sunday services are important, but we don't want to be a church community that is marked by a bunch of commuters who drive in to attend Sunday services. And that's the big deal. That's why it's a big deal about where our focus is and where people live and all that kind of stuff. We want to be a community of people who live in relative proximity to one another so that together we can engage in reaching people and making disciples and participate in one another's lives in meaningful ways. And so that's why we have this focus so that the church can function as God designed, as we humbly seek to ascertain what that is. So our lives can actually intersect. So we can participate with one another with our own discipleship process of what it means to be following Jesus together on and on mission for him on the west side. And you can't do that when your church community is spread across 500 square miles. That's the size of Los Angeles, by the way, if you didn't know. For 16 years, I served in commuter churches and I'm not ripping on those churches. And in many ways, you can't control that. If God's doing a work, people are attracted to it. I get it. It's, 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 it's fine. All I'm saying is we're not going to cater to commuters. We're not going to shape things to accommodate commuter, commuters. Okay? Because it will mess with what we can do together as a church. It will mess with who, is God, who God has called us to be and the, and the presence that we have here on the West Side for him. And as I worked for 16 years within a context of, of what was essentially commuter churches, I can tell you that it created so many problems. It created so many problems. But enough about that. Here's the point. We want to ref- reflect our context. And we're really excited about some possibilities that are coming up in the hopefully near future. It appears to be the near future. Uh, about some new opportunities to have more of a presence in the neighborhood on the West side that has the highest percentage of people of color. And we're super excited. It's part of the West side, but we love about how that's gonna allow us to reach new people and to have a presence in a new neighborhood and what that could even mean for us as a church community that seeks to practice racial and ethnic togetherness. We wanna be the kind of church family that everyone can be a part of, where they feel welcomed and loved and valued and needed. And together, we can make that happen. It's not about the pastors getting a room and and having a meeting and figuring out the the greatest and latest ministry strategy and figuring all that kind of stuff out. You have as much responsibility in that as I do. Because each of us are reaching our sphere. Our neighbors, the people we work with, whatever, the people we live around, the people we bump into. I remember Ross talking about his flower lady. You know, the lady that he's been ministering to that runs the flower shop that he goes to. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not reaching that lady in the flower shop. Ross is. Each of us have a sphere of influence. And so what we're not is a church that is seeking to do stuff in such a way that we just attract people in a very unrelational sense to what we're doing as spectators. We're seeking to be a church community that's on mission Seeking to reach people and make disciples in the context of the West side. And I am not going to reach everybody on the West side. Ryan is not going to reach everybody on the West side. Each of us can reach somebody and those somebodies should be reached as God has placed them into our lives. Sorry, getting a little crazy here. So in addition to be, in addition to seeing racial and ethnic togetherness, justice in the church or setting things right in the church also looks like relational reconciliation. And this is another relevant issue for us. Quite honestly, there's a lot of people with a lot of strong feelings about a lot of stuff that could cause relational fractures and division in our church. Think Thanksgiving dinner with the fam. It's kind of like that. It can happen. The potential is there. Now people are allowed to have strong feelings. People are allowed to have opinions, but what we can't have is when it causes unnecessary uh, fractures and division. In the church in Philippi, there were a couple of members of the church there who were at odds with one another. Apparently they had some kind of falling out. And, And apparently this falling out that they had had become public knowledge. So much so that Paul, who's still in Rome, right? Still a prisoner in Rome, he hears about it. And so he addresses it. He addresses this division or this, this relationship, this tension in this relationship in his letter to the church in Philippi. And so Philippians chapter four, we see what he says. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Can you imagine having such a beef with someone that it would be addressed in a letter that was written to the entire church? That's like us, like bringing up drama in our church in the middle of announcements or something. Like, how awkward and weird would that be? I mean, I guess technically sometimes it might be necessary or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. That part's not in my notes, so you can just ignore what I just said. But notice what Paul says and what he doesn't say. He doesn't just address the two individuals involved and get on their case and tell Spartan up and get over it and like get along. He honors their partnership in the gospel, their faithfulness in and to the gospel as the gospel is the basis for our unity. And he he honors their partnership and their work in the gospel. And he calls for others to help. We are responsible. I said this already. We are responsible to and for one another and we play a part in one another's lives as family members who are peacemakers. We are to play a part as family members and as peacemakers facilitating reconciliation within the church. Now, getting along isn't always easy. I get it. And we struggle sometimes with loving others, especially difficult people. We all have them in our life, right? We can think right now, okay, yeah, this person, that person. Yeah, they're very difficult. If you knew them, you'd know how difficult they were too. And and sort of because they're difficult, we sort of like give ourselves the excuse like, well, I don't really have to love them uh, because you know, they're just a very difficult person to love. And so I'm off the hook. But I saw a, a tweet yesterday uh, that was pretty awesome. And it said this, love difficult people. You're one of them. And it's so true, you're a difficult person. I am a difficult person, but when people wrong us, our first reaction is not usually to buy them uh, coffee and cupcakes and hang out. Hey, let's spend some time together, brother. We don't want to spend time with people that have wronged us or hurt us. We don't want to respond with, with love for them. We don't want to respond with forgiveness because of what they've done and because quite frankly, they don't deserve it. But here's something to think about in those moments. Jesus died so that they could be forgiven for what they did to you. When it comes to difficult people and the ways that they've wronged us, it's good for us to be reminded of the fact that Jesus died so that they could be forgiven for what they did to you. It helps when we can see these situations through the lens of the gospel and acknowledge that, that we've been forgiven despite being so undeserving ourselves. And while our thoughts tend to be dominated by what they've done, Romans 12 reminds us to consider what we can do. It says this Romans 12 and verse 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it, de- as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's some personal responsibility there when it comes to relational reconciliation. The church is to model the kind of love we have received from Jesus. And Jesus had this to say in John 13. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice how it says that the world will know that we belong to Jesus. It's not by the way that we love them. The world will know that we belong to Jesus by the way that we love one another. And it's such, I mean, that kind of goes contrary, right? You know, we want to be so loving to the world that the world just is so curious and confused about, wait, why would you love me so much? And this is so amazing. You must be a follower of Jesus. But actually what this verse says that the world's going to know that we are his by the way we love one another. Why? It's because we're going to have our differences. We're going to have our differences and the church isn't supposed to be a homogeneous group and just a bunch of carbon copies. That's why the way we love one another is a testimony to the world around us. When they see that there can be disagreement and when they see that we still in the midst of disagreement, love one another and remain unified because the basis of our unity is in Christ, not in seeing things eye to eye. I love what uh, theologian Francis Schaeffer had to say about this. He said, It is in the midst of a difference that we have our golden opportunity when everything is going well and we are all standing around in a nice little circle. There's not uh, much to be seen by the world, but when we come to the place where there's a, a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles at the same time, observable love, then there is something that the world can see something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the father. When you think about it, unity is unremarkable among people who agree. Unity is unremarkable among people who agree. It's when there would normally be relational strain and discord that being and remaining, being and remaining a family that loves one another and sticks together speaks volumes. And I would ask you to consider this. A unity that cannot weather shortcomings, disappointments, relational strain, and differences of opinion is no unity at all. These things should not be sufficient to topple the weightier truth of the gospel that makes us and binds us together as family. But when we allow these things to divide us, not only does it undermine the work of the gospel in our lives, but it unjustly and unnecessarily harms the church that belongs to Jesus and our mission to reach people and make disciples. Something that we have to understand is that cancel culture is not Christian. Cancel culture is not Christian. We can't cancel people. We don't get to do that as much as we want to do it. Like we all wish we had like the red button on the desk. But we just push the button and then, you know, the trap door open ups and <laughs> They down, they go, and we never see them again or whatever. But there, there are times where we want to do that, right? Where people cross the line and we're done. We're over them. And we write them off as unredeemable. But that's not very loving of us, obviously. First John chapter 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Notice this sibling language there. So in addition to uh, racial and ethnic togetherness and relational reconciliation, justice in the church family will also look like, number three, caring for one another. Galatians chapter six. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And we see the, the priority principle there and a, um, uh, how proximity is, is, is a part of that. And we see a picture of this in the, in the early church in Acts chapter two, where it says at the, near the end of the chapter, and all who believed were together. This is the early church. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45 and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, pro- distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this completely freaks some people out. I totally get it. What, is the church supposed to be some kind of weird socialist commune? Or like, what's going on here? Well, I, I guess my, my response to that is call it whatever you want, to be totally honest. I mean, there it is. Make sense of it however you will. But people often miss a critical part of verse 45 there in Acts chapter two, where it says distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And we get all freaked out about socialism or whatever. And we miss the whole point that this is about caring for people. We're a family uh, and they were a family and they were taking care of one another as they should. We have another uh, example in Acts chapter six, in Acts chapter six, there was a complaint from the Hellenists um, who were Greek speaking Jews uh, that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And so what the church, how the church responded is that uh, the church selected se- uh, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom to carry out this duty to ensure that these Hellenist widows were properly cared for and provided for. And what is particularly noteworthy about that passage there in Acts chapter six is that based on the names of the men who were selected to carry out that duty, we can conclude that they were of Greek descent. So they were well-suited for the task and it set them up to care for these widows in the best way possible, even to the ability to be able to communicate with them or whatever else, understanding cultural customs, whatever it might've been. But they, they selected these men. What kind of family? This is the question. What kind of family doesn't take care of one another? So of course they needed to be concerned about that. And, and we want to be concerned about that as well. And uh, as it relates to families where, that don't take care of one another, uh, who would want to be a part of that kind of a family? And, and, and if again, if you come from a family where there was a lack of care, you know firsthand what an offense that is but Jesus calls us to a better way. To share an example from my own life, I broke my tibia in three places last December. While I was in the ER, Derek Hansen came by, some of you know him, and uh, I needed surgery, but they're like, we can't do anything for you in the ER, so we're gonna dope you up, send you home, you can come back tomorrow and have surgery. And uh, there's nothing they could do for me there. But while waiting to be discharged, you know because it takes forever derek ran over to cvs to uh, uh to get my prescription filled and when he came back he learned that a f- you know a few things had happened in his absence and he learned that i was starting to have heart complications and i have a heart issue as well um and so that was my heart was starting to act up and and so based on that and they tried several times to deal with it and they're like fine forget it we're just going to admit you keep you here until surgery and and and, and so i'm like okay bro like I- i'm there admitting me so like thanks for everything And uh, I'm I'm good. I really appreciate you being here. And he's like, no, I'm going to hang out. And he insisted on hanging out with me um, until I got settled in my, in what would be, you know, in my actual hospital room until I was fully admitted. And he was with me till about three in the morning. And it's not like I was even conscious the whole time, but he was with me. He stuck with me and he hung out. And he wasn't there because we were best friends in their, tra- in their traditional sense. He was there looking out for me as a brother and he saw himself as responsible for me in, the, in, in, the, in that moment. Super classy guy, obviously. It's great when you know that kind of care happens naturally and organically, uh, but it doesn't always work out that way despite our best intentions. And that's why at Collective Church, we put together systems and structures to help ensure that uh, we're caring for people. Uh, properly and intentionally. We have a care coordinator. We've got care leads in, in the five regions of the West side and all of that is geared towards helping um, provide care. And the danger is that we would fail to take personal responsibility and personal initiative to care for people because we want the church to do it for us, but we just got to be intentional about it, especially in the days of COVID, you know, where we were there. We're isolated. We're all stuck at home and that sort of things. So we have people who live alone and I would just encourage you to think of the people that you haven't seen in a while and ask them and just reach out to them text them and or send them an email and ask them how they're doing tell them that you miss them it's it's important for us to sort of just to care for people even in the most simplest of ways so justice in the church family looks like racial and ethnic togetherness relational reconciliation caring for another and it also looks like quite honestly church discipline and restoration and this is probably one of the most obvious ways that we are a family of justice where we are setting things right, especially uh, since most people, when they think about justice, they think retributive justice. But what is often referred to as church discipline is about restorative justice as much as it is about retributive justice. Church discipline and restoration is, is often misunderstood. It's often ignored and overlooked in the church. But according to 1 Peter chapter 4, judgment begins in the house of God. And we see Paul dealing with this insane situation in the church in Corinth. And we see it recorded for us in first Corinthians chapter five. And he says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerant, even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Then now down to verse nine of first Corinthians five. I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Now, if that sounds harsh, that's because sin is. And for those that would seek to justify their sin, we have this warning from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter five and verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And then we have another warning from John the Baptist calling for Israel's repentance in Matthew chapter three, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able uh, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore that does not bear fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Or in other words, don't think that because you are in, you can do whatever you want. God takes sin seriously. And because he does, so should we. So what role do we have in addressing and confronting sin in the church? And what does it look like practically speaking? Matthew 18 provides um, some helpful guidance there for us. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. It's the first thing you do. Just go and tell him his fault. Address it with him. Between you and him alone, not with your friends, not with your roommates, not with your pastor. Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal. You want to win him over. You want to gain your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every, and here's why, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, is this really a sin? And, oh yeah, this is a sin. So bro, you need to repent. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Or in other words, considered outside of that community. When someone remains unrepentant and there's no sign of allegiance or faithfulness to Christ, we acknowledge that. And quite honestly, with heavy hearts, we agree that the person has separated themselves from following Jesus and from the community that is following Jesus. We don't get to shrug our shoulders at sin and say, oh, that's unfortunate. We have a duty and an obligation as family members who are responsible for one another to stand for righteousness and to stand for what is just. For the sake of the church, for the sake of our witness, and for the sake of the person out of love for them. Of course, the goal is to see that person restored. That's what it's all about. Galatians chapter six says that if anyone is caught in any transgression, we're to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And if justice is setting things right, we cannot be a family of justice if we are tolerant and permissive of what is not right. And if God, who claims to be a just God, did not punish sin, he would not be just. The cross is where love and justice meet. John chapter 3, very well known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but, that the, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God the Father sent Jesus to the cross so that we could become his sons and daughters. Colossians chapter 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, here's the, the reality. Your sin has separated you from God. But all of that can change today because of what Jesus did 2000 years ago. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you a new spirit and a new heart. And all because Jesus took the penalty for your sin already. Justice has been served. We don't have to get what we deserve when we can, and we can thank Jesus for that. And not only will you be reconciled to God, but you will be adopted into his family you will gain new spiritual brothers and sisters. You will become a part of his family. So it's not about a religion that you, you know, integrate into your life. It's about a family that you become a part of. And I would appeal to you today to be reconciled to God and to place your faith in Jesus. Let's pray.